Well, good morning, church. Uh, would you join me in thanking uh, everyone who helped put together the children's choir one more time? Now, I'll be honest, I, I can make one promise. The cuteness factor is just going downhill from now. It, it's not going to get better than that. <laughs> and there's some dance moves in there that I've never seen before, but I, I definitely know I could not pull off. So that's some impressive things. Well, like he said, uh, my name is Caleb, and I have the privilege of being the campus pastor at Mission Hill Six Mile. Um, I don't, because of that, I don't spend too much time at this campus specifically uh, throughout the week, but especially on Sundays because I'm usually there. Uh, and because of that, when I am here kind of doing my thing, I get a little bit of a mixed reaction. And what I mean by that is everyone's nice, don't worry. But uh, sometimes uh, I get greeted with people who've known me since I was a kid, since I did grow up in this church. And so they'll just rush me and be like, look how tall you've gotten. Or showing me my baby photos. And so that's one end of the spectrum. But on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, I've, I've been gone for a while. And so sometimes people greet me and they have no clue who I am. So they're just like, welcome to Mission Hill which that's, that's super nice too. Uh, a few weeks ago, if you remember, we had donuts and I had to come over here to grab some donuts for Six Mile. And I'm pretty sure there's a few guests or volunteers who didn't know me who think I stole the donuts. Like they just saw this like guy who kind of looks like a middle schooler walking out of the kitchen. And so if that was you, I'm sorry. I, I wasn't stealing donuts. They went to the church. And I probably did eat a, eat a few donuts on the way, but the majority of them did go to the church. Um, Seriously, from the bottom of my heart, I'm honored uh, to be here today and deliver the message. It's a, a great opportunity. Uh, at our six-mile campus in the Mission Hill Ministry Center, we're kind of in a building phase with a lot of new things going on. I also work for an organization called One More Child that we partner with there. And uh, through that organization, we're really uh, helping build some of the things at Six Mile. Uh, for instance, we're in this process of starting a juvenile justice program. We uh, are in the process of bringing on anti-human trafficking staff from One More Child. In addition to that, we're furthering the things we've been doing throughout the years with the homeless ministry. Uh, Matthew Crawford, who leads a lot of that, just got involved in, in some jail ministry. And so if you're interested in any of that, if you know someone who's in need that maybe could, could reach out to us, I'd love to get connected with you. You can always email me or just chase me down when I am here. Well, I want to begin uh, today uh, by sharing a confession, and not that I stole donuts, but a different confession, of, of a childhood fear of mine. Now, we all have fears, and I venture to say most of your fears are, are probably normal. They're probably just heights, snakes, spiders, those type of thing. But some of us have some fears that are, are kind of strange, and I'm not going to point any of your fears out, but I'll be willing to confess mine. Now, as you can tell, I was a church kid through and through. I'm a pastor kid, raised in the church. So there's one fear I had that was kind of weird, and that was I was deathly afraid of the rapture. As a kid, I was super afraid of the end times. And that's because I thought there would come a day where I'd hear the trumpets sound, and I was just going to be left behind. And so I'll, I'll give you an example. It happened all the time that I was out doing some task for the family. I was out being a great dog owner in the backyard. And after a, a few minutes of being alone, I just want to see what my family was up to. So I kind of looked through the window of our house. I didn't see anyone. And then so I'd walk in and call for people and still silence. So my anxiety started to build. I'd look around and call out for Noah or Luke. It's a good one, guys. You don't have to prank me. And I was really freaking out now. There's a lot of logical answers that, that could have been why I couldn't find them. 
could have been in the front yard. It could have just been in the room with some music on. But at this point, there was only one logical answer that made sense to me, and that's that the rapture had happened and I was left behind. And I was on my own. Everyone was Jesus, and I had been left behind. And so it was time to bring out the big guns. And I was mama, so I started calling out, Mom, Mom, Mom. And she would come out from doing something completely normal, like being in the front yard. She'd call me down. She'd say, Caleb, you're married now. You really need to go home. I don't know why you're doing this. <laughs> now, the last part's not true. I haven't done that in a while. But the truth was, I was obsessed with the end times. And many Christians today share in that obsession. And we tend to think about the end times as much as probably almost anything we think about within the Christian faith. But my fear is that you may have had the same perspective that I did. You might be asking the wrong question about the end times. See, the question that most of us ask about the end times is when? When is that day when Jesus will return? But the question that uh, but what Jesus says in Matthew 24:36 is that no one will know that day. In fact, he says, but about that day or about that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So this question of when that a lot of us ask, and that a lot of people have made a lot of money trying to answer, is not really the question that Scripture asks of us. Jesus goes on in that passage to give this image of a thief on a cross. And in verse 43, he talks about this thief comes on a time that no one will expect. The purpose of this image is to remind us that Jesus is coming back and we don't know when, so we need to be prepared. So the question that the last days ask of us is not when, but how are we living in anticipation of that day? If Jesus is truly coming back like a thief on a cross, how are we to live now in anticipation of then. So today we'll be in 1 Peter 4, verses, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And this question of anticipation is what Peter is really de- dealing with in this letter. And it's a question that all followers of Jesus have to take seriously. I want to f- remind you of 1 Peter's setting. See, Peter was one of the closest friends of Jesus. And after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, Peter was kind of the leader of the early church movement. And he started out in Jerusalem, which was kind of his headquarters. And then he was slowly moved out. And I say slowly because the Holy Spirit kind of had to drag him out into the greater world. And he writes 1 Peter from Rome, which he describes as Babylon, which basically means Vegas on steroids. I mean, it's the worst of the worst. And he writes to the Christians, Christians who were being persecuted, Christians who have scattered It's safe to say that these Christians really would have felt like they were in the last days because they were in intense persecution. These were Christians who knew brothers and sisters that were close to them that had died because of their faith. These were followers of Jesus that likely knew someone who had been burned on a stake so they could be made a public example of. And so as Peter writes this letter, there's a heaviness that he writes with. Most of us in this room today, I don't know your background, we probably didn't come from that level of persecution. But what all of us can relate to is pain and suffering from sickness and loss or addiction. It's with that pain that we can read this letter and relate to the churches that Peter was writing to. 
and look forward to the last days. So let's go ahead and read 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11, and then let's pray one more time. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And each of you should use whatever gift you received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised. Through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, as we sit here today, we recognize there's no power in my words. There's no power in the the notes I prepared or the research. There's only power in your spirit. And so God, would you move us today? Would you help us to live lives that are more urgent? Lord, for those who are maybe comfortable, would you push them and challenge them? For those who are experiencing pain and grieving and loss and suffering, Lord, would you be their comforter today? God, we thank you that we can pray to the God of the universe even now, and we give you all the glory and all the honor. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. As Peter lays out this letter, he really gives us guidelines on how we are to anticipate and live for the last days. The first thing we see in verse 7 is that the last days demand urgent prayer. Verse 7 reads, the end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. When I think about the last days, I'm a bit of a nerd. And so I picture a battle. And I picture uh, movies with the apocalypse. And I'll even picture Lord of the Rings and the final battles and that. And see, as you, as you read scripture, there is imagery of battle in the last days. But yet, as God calls us into this battle, he says that our strongest weapon is prayer. He says, stay alert so that you may what? So that you may pray. Remember, this was in a time where Christians would have had a great temptation to react to violence with more violence. I mean, they were watching people get killed for their faith. And Peter would have understood that temptation more than most. And Peter was a man who wanted Jesus to come in and kind of wipe out the Romans, be that warrior king. And Peter was a guy who in the garden with Jesus in his last moments, I mean, he was slicing a dice and he cut off a man's ear. In front of the Prince of Peace, he was like, yeah, I think it's a good idea to cut off a man's ear. I mean, that's the Peter that's writing this letter. Yet in the midst of all this chaos that he's facing, he says that we should react to all this with prayer. Today, it seems like people handle conflict just by getting louder, like actually screaming at one another. I don't know the last time you turned on the news was, but I'll just be checking the weather or something, and all of a sudden I see two purple-faced people just yelling at each other, explaining why the other person's the worst person to ever live. I mean, that's the climate that we live in. And yet, in the midst of that chaos, what Peter is saying is that our best weapon, our best response is courageous prayer. And so that begs the question, do we believe prayer works? 
And I think the answer for us is probably yes. I think we're a pretty good praying church. Scripture teaches that prayer changes things and it changes us. And we've seen that as a church. I mean, even this past Sunday night, we celebrated real miracles that were the result of prayer. That's a core identity to our church. And so the question becomes, and if we believe on a communal level that prayer works, then how come personally sometimes we don't pray? Look back to what Peter says about being sober-minded and alert. See, if we're to effectively pray in this chaotic and crazy environment, we have to be willing to cut through the noise of this world. In the modern world, we have access to pretty much unlimited noise. And if we are to live for the last days, we have to set aside time just to be quiet, quiet before the Lord. There's so many uh, ways we have unlimited noise today, but most of us have these rectangular boxes, probably in your, fun, in your pocket right now. I left mine at my seat, but I just have unlimited noise, unlimited entertainment, unlimited distraction in that box. Now, there's a lot of good things that come from it, but there's also a lot of noise. And so most of us, probably in the middle of our workday, we get to lunch, and the first thing we do at our lunch break is scroll while we're like shoving some microwavable macaroni in our face. And then we get home from work and we might say hi to our roommate or our spouse or a partner, but then we start scrolling. And then we do this weird thing where we turn on TV, but we're not even really watching TV, we're, we're still scrolling. And then some of you even take that, that box into the most sacred place of all, the bathroom, and I'm not even going to get into that, that's between you and the Lord. But the point is we have unlimited noise. Now, I'm not a big social media person, uh, but my kind of vice when it comes to modern technology is podcast. If you don't know what podcasts are, they're basically modern talk radio, and there's podcasts literally for every single topic under the sun. And so I've gotten into the habit of anytime I do a a mundane task, it could be literally a five-minute task, I'll I'll turn on a podcast that's like an hour long, and I'll load it up just so I can like take out the garbage. It's it's a bad habit. It's kind of embarrassing. And what makes it a dangerous combo is I also have AirPods or wireless earphones. So sometimes I'll be listening to a podcast with earphones in, especially when my hair was a little longer, I could hide it. And so Rebecca will be getting in a conversation with me while I'm doing the dishes. And meanwhile, I'm in a whole other world. I'm listening to the top 100 NBA players of all time or 15 ways I can use peanut butter in a better way. I mean, I'm just in a whole other world distracted. And it's funny, but the truth is I think Sometimes the distraction, this noise, we intentionally turn up. We intentionally turn up the noise because we don't want to deal with the issues that are going on in our hearts and in our mind. And maybe you feel this as when you finally get to bed and lay your head down, your mind just instantly works in overdrive, trying to deal with all the things you've been ignoring for the whole week. So we don't give our minds time to process life let alone time to process life with God. That's one reason I love what we're doing with House of Prayer. Because in the middle of a hectic, crazy, sometimes heavy week, we take a moment where we're forced to sit down and pray. To go to God as our counselor with our our frustrations, with our anger, with our our sickness. And it's great that we're doing that as a, a community, but we need to do that in our personal time too. Prayer pushes our perspective to be back in line with the kingdom. I love this quote by Gary Thomas. He says that prayer pushes eternity back into our lives. 
making God ever more relevant to the way we live our lives. For us to effectively live for the last days, we have to desperately reclaim that time of prayer. It's not just prayer, though. In verse 8, we see that the last days call for deeper love. Peter writes, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. As we just established in the last days, things are going to get crazy. People are going to get loud, and you're feeling that. And if you're not careful, you might end up on YouTube. Or it might be that purple-faced news anchor we were just teasing about. So what are we to do in the last days? We're to pray, but we also have to embrace love above all things. As we stay sober-minded and alert, we embrace love. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, it's a passage that's often used in the context of marriage, but it's really just talking about the church as a whole. And he lists all these amazing gifts of, of tongues and prophecy and knowledge. But then he says, if I do not have love, I gain nothing. Another way Paul could say that is if we miss love, we miss everything. As we stay sober-minded, as we stay urgent, we must love urgently and love deeply. And why should we love deeply? Well, look what Peter says. Because love covers a multitude of sins. And this is extremely countercultural, specifically to today's moment. In today's moment, there's an increasing desire to uncover sin for the purpose of shame. Call it cancel culture, call it whatever you want. It's something that's not new. But we're trying to reveal someone's worst moments and put it on a platform. But we see in the gospel that Jesus does the opposite. That he sees sin, he sees our worst moments, and he's the only person who can truly judge it. And yet he covers it in his love. In fact, the message of the gospel is that Jesus loved us so much that he's willing to die to cover our sins. And as Christians, we have to follow this countercultural example. Since we have been forgiven, that means we don't get to pick and choose who receives this love covering and who doesn't receive their sins covered. Peter said a multitude of sins for a reason. And so as believers in this perverse world, we can't follow the world's example of piling shame on top of shame, but we have to cover sin and love. Now, this is a church, so I figure that's a pretty like, okay, we agree with that. I'd hope so. Love's a good thing. But that's a lot easier in the abstract when we're not dealing with concrete people and concrete sins. It's a little harder when you realize that means that we have to love the liar, that we have to love the terrorist and the racist, that we have to love the murderer, the person who's living in a sexual way that may even gross you out. That's the person God's calling us to cover in love. See, God's love not only covers a multitude of sins, but it covers a multitude of sinners, of actual people. This is really directed the vision we have for the ministry center. That's why we started that partnership with One More Child. Because we want to love a multitude of broken people. Because we serve a God who loves the homeless, a God who loves the prisoner. A God who loves that teen who's made the worst mistake of their life. A God who loves the survivor of human trafficking. A God who loves the forgotten. And that's how we're called to be as people. People who pursue the forgotten and those who society is going to push out. And so really what we're getting at is, is the question of who is our love to aim at? 
And the more you read the Bible, the more you realize kind of everybody, which is a pretty high bar. We're called to love our neighbor. We're called to love the least of these. And so you're not really left with many people not to love. And yet there's a group I think sometimes we forget that's right in front of us. And that's what Peter gets to in the next verse. And that's one another. It's actually loving the church. So in verse 9, Peter pivots the conversation to remind us that we're all in this together. In the last days, we have to offer radical hospitality to one another. Peter writes, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. That call to hospitality is a call to treat the church like family. It's a call to be willing to inconvenience yourself for other brothers and sisters in Christ. But it even goes further than that. When you look at the Greek word for hospitality, it means being generous to guests. Forget this, loving strangers. So what that's saying is that when you see another Christian, despite if you even know them, you're to treat them like family. And that can be hard because I have a hard enough time loving the people I like, let alone the people I don't know. As a kid, I wasn't always the best when we'd have guests over. In fact, I really hate this last part of the verse where he says, without grumbling. I was okay, okay, I can be nice to people, but without grumbling, I kind of complain a little bit. And so we'd have guests over um, at our house. And there's really two groups I would treat a little bit differently, if I was being honest. There's the people I knew and the people I didn't know. Because I knew when we had a guest over, we were going to have to go mission control and clean that whole house and make it all sparkly for our guest. And so if it was a person I knew, if it was like a sleepover I was having, I was all down for that. That was my friend coming over. I'll clean the house. I'll get the vacuum out. But when it was my Uncle Theodore that I hadn't seen in seven years, I missed my last three birthdays. I mean, come on, do something for me. And so I was dragging my feet a little bit when it came to cleaning the house. For the record, I don't have an Uncle Theodore, so I didn't just shame someone in my family. It's okay. We're all good. But the truth is, most of us probably struggle to inconvenience ourselves for people we like, let alone for people we don't know. And so how do we start? Well, for starters, we have to be willing to open our homes, to give someone a ride, to offer someone a cup of coffee just to get a meal with someone. I was talking about this concept uh, at our campus the other day, and I explained that a lot of us don't come from a lot of means. Some of us don't have much to offer, but we can always offer a relationship, and sometimes that's the most powerful thing. As a historical note, for the early church, the church that Peter is writing to, to survive, it required them to live in drastically hospitable ways. I mean, even for them to have an area to host, it required someone of means from the community to let them in. It required people from the community, not counting their possessions as their own, but loving radically. And that same urgency that for the church's survival is true today, that we have to live out this hospitality. I think of one group, which is, is college students, who are just by large numbers fleeing from the church even if they grew up. I remember when I went to college, one of the initial feelings I felt was instability. Because when you go somewhere, really your whole support system is just ripped from you. And different people handle that in different ways. But one of the things that was key to my formation and my, my stability 
was having people from the local church, just like you, reach out. People I barely knew just met on a whim saying, hey, would you want to get coffee? You want to come over to our house and have a meal, meet my family? From all ages, peers, but also people of older ages. And what they were showing me that in this new place where I was a stranger, I still mattered. I still had a family. I still had support. Now, the truth is, I've been on the other side of that now. And sometimes I'm tired. I just want to get home and have some Wendy's or something. I don't feel like having some smelly college freshmen in my apartment. But what those group of Christians that invested in me understood and what the early church understood is that we have to love generously to guests. We have to love radically to strangers. So never underestimate the power of your invitation, of your of building a relationship. We know our love expands to all, but we have to start by loving each other well. Peter continues his argument in verse 10 as he reminds us that in the last days we are to leverage our gifts to serve others and glorify God. In verse 10 he says, it's, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. I think one of the challenges we have when we think about the gifts of God is that we can conflate that with earthly talents. See, earthly talents really are used for our own self-promotion, used to just get us ahead a little bit in life. I'm not even saying that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, that's kind of logical. I mean, you have these great stories of people in, in all industries that use their talents to take them from an awful position. I mean, I think about LeBron James, who really came up from this really hard environment, but because he was blessed with this tremendous skill, is now a billionaire. I mean, that's pretty impressive. But that's not really what the Bible is talking about when it talks about gifts. See, gifts are used to serve God, serve others, and glorify God. But that begs the question, then, what are gifts? And that's where it gets a little bit tricky, because as we look at Scripture, we see that every good thing is a gift of God. James 1.17 says it like this, Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. What that means is that our talents, our resources, our, our family, our money, that all belongs to God. And we're to use that to serve others, care for those in need in our community, and glorify Him. And you see this in the way that Peter treats the ideas of speech and, and service in verse 11. He says that if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God, because those words belong to him. And it says if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. I love this quote that Pastor Andrew used a couple weeks ago from Louis Giglio. So I'm quoting Pastor Andrew, quoting Louis. So it's a little meta, but stick with me. And so what Pastor Andrew said from Louis is worship is simply giving God his breath back. Worship is simply giving God his breath back. See, everything you do is a moment to glorify God. There's no great division between the secular and the sacred. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, you are to glorify God with everything, with your speech and with your actions and with your very breath. As Peter concludes this thought, he ends it in a great way, and that's with an amen. 
or a so be it. And what he's saying is all these things, that's how we desire to live in the last days. This life of prayer, this life of hospitality and love and of service with our gifts. And that would be a great way and probably a happier way to end the sermon. But I only got today with you guys, and so I don't want to leave out something Peter gets to in the very next verse that's pretty important as we think about the last days. So let me read verse 12 for us. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So to end on a little bit of a bummer, the last thing we see about the last days is that they're hard. The last days are hard. I mean, he literally describes their life as a fiery ordeal. That's a pretty big yikes. That doesn't sound like a good time. If you remember last week, we talked about the fact that suffering is real and human existence is hard. Nowhere in Scripture does a promise that life's going to be easy. In fact, if you read closely enough, it kind of says the opposite. In fact, if you follow Jesus, your life even might be harder. We're always going to suffer. Pastor Paul likes to use the quote that we're always in a storm, going into a storm, or going out of a storm. That's, that's a great concept. But the more you think about it, you're like, wait a second. That means I'm always in a storm pretty much. I mean, you're just in this endless cycle. It doesn't sound fun. See, everyone suffers, but there's two distinctives about Christian suffering that can bring us, I think, a little bit of joy in the midst of our suffering. Verse 13 puts it this way, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you might be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. See, first, the last days are hard, but we're not alone. We are not alone. We participate in the sufferings of who? Of Jesus. So as we go through pain, we know that Jesus has suffered everything that we can think of. There's nothing that he can't walk alongside us with. And if you're sitting here and thinking that's a cliche and that there's no way that's true, I love this verse in Luke 17, uh, verse 24. It's a passage that's talking about the purpose of Jesus on earth. And in the middle of this passage, there's like a disclaimer given by Luke about Jesus' purpose. Luke writes, But he first must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And so you might feel like Jesus doesn't understand what you feel like when you're in that breakup. But Jesus was rejected by his whole generation, by a whole people, by a whole world. And if that's not enough, Jesus knew what it was like to have unmet desires. To sit in a garden and beg his father to make it another way. Jesus understood what it was like to be rejected by his closest friends, to be abandoned by his family, to be physically beaten and abused, to be killed Jesus understands what we're walking through. But not only does Jesus understand what we're walking through, as we walk in this race, or run in this race of faith, as you begin to look around, you see that there's other believers who are suffering alongside with you. And so we can't buy into this idea that we're alone. Because for every sickness you've had, there's someone else in this probably same church, in the same service, who can comfort you because they've been through it for loss, for pain, for addiction. We are not alone. Secondly, we see that the last days are hard, but there's purpose in our suffering. It's not without purpose. Oftentimes as Christians, I think we have the tendency to maybe 
sanctify and make our suffering sound better than it is. And having purpose in suffering can quickly turn to pretending in suffering. See, purpose doesn't mean that it's good or that's fun, but it just means there's purpose. Purpose for our own transformation and for the glory of God. See, I think God was one of those people that honestly didn't understand what it meant to have purpose in suffering. And so I'd come into a church like this, this very church, and I'd be going through something wrong, and so I'd just put on a smile. Because I knew, okay, I'm supposed to do something in suffering, and I feel awful, but I'm just going to act like things are okay. I remember this really came to a head in my life when my dad sat me and my brothers down when I was a freshman in high school and shared that my mom had cancer. I mean, instantly, I remember my life just flipping on a dime. I began to unravel. And after that conversation, I kind of excused myself, and I did uh, the same thing I was used to do, doing, and I just pretended that I was okay and tried to push down the emotion. And I went outside on a slanted, uh, our little hill where we have a basketball hoop. And I don't know if I learned to pro- process my emotions from high school musical, but I just started playing basketball, crying. Only a few people got that joke. It's okay. Showed my age there. And I just kept pushing it down and pushing it down. And there's nothing that I did that really turned that around. There's nothing I did that made me feel like, oh, there's some great thing in this suffering I'm going through. But it wasn't until I saw the way that my mom saw her own cancer and saw the purpose within it that in the middle of her body literally shutting down and going to the hospital and all these treatments that she was still caring for us, that she was loving on her kids, asking if we were okay. That in the middle of this pain, she was talking to doctors and telling them about Jesus and how God has love for them and has a plan for them. See, in her life, I was able to see that God can be glorified in the worst things. That doesn't mean that those things themselves are good, just that we have a good God who can bring good out of them. But it wasn't just for his glory, it's also for the transformation of believers, for my transformation. As I realized the kingdom of God doesn't just start one day when I die, when I float up and go to the clouds, but it starts now. That purpose in my life now to push against the darkness and push light into the hardest places. So even in one of the worst moments of my life, I was able to see purpose in a new way. Push past pretending and just living on purpose because that's what God's blessed us with. The purpose behind suffering is another way we actually share with the Messiah. We share with Jesus in that. We often quote John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he sent his son, his only son. But another way that could really be understood is that Jesus so loved us that he was willing to suffer because he knew there was purpose in it. So Jesus loved a multitude of sinners so much that he was willing to come down as a kid where he was mistreated, where he had to flee from people who were trying to kill him. Jesus loved a multitude of broken people so much that he was willing to be rejected by his friends and family. He loved us so much he was willing to be cast out and crucified by his own generation. They experienced as much pain as you can imagine and then have shame and guilt of the whole world put on on him as he was on that cross. And then he died because he loved a multitude of broken people. And then three days later, he rose again. So that same group of people that rejected him, people that live back then, us today with our sin, 
so that if we put our faith in him, we could have eternal life, so that we could have forgiveness of sins, so that we could live on purpose just like he did. See, that's the gospel message, that Jesus came into this world to die because he loves us. And he rose again, giving us new life. We just put our, our faith in him. If you're here today and you're not sure if you have faith, maybe you've grown up in the church, maybe you, this is the first time walking into a church, John Mark Comer says it like this, uh, faith isn't religious, it's human. All of us put our reliance, put our trust in something. It might be politics, it might be our family, it might be another religion, but we're all putting our trust in something. And so if you're here and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, it'd be my desire that you do that today. Because in his name there is freedom, in his name there is hope. And all you have to do is put your trust in him. At the conclusion of our service, we'll have pastors and leaders in the back who would love to talk through this with you. If you're ready to pray, to receive Christ, we can do that with you. If you're just starting here and you need to say, hey, who is this Jesus guy you keep talking about? We'll start there with you too. For those of us who are believers, there's really one last question that Peter leaves us with indirectly. As he brings up the suffering of Jesus, he's asking us, are you willing to follow the example of that suffering servant? See, Jesus was willing to die. He was willing to suffer so that others could realize there is freedom in his name. And that's the same path we can take too. Are you willing to suffer so that others around you, your family, your friends, those you don't even know, can experience a freedom that's found in Jesus' name? See, we don't know when. We don't know when Jesus is returning. And if you find someone that knows the exact day, you should run the opposite direction. But we do know how we're called to live. So let's live with urgent purpose. Let's reclaim prayer. Let's love in hospitable ways. Let's invite strangers in. Let's use our, our gifts as stewards. Let's love the forgotten. If I had to sum this up, I'd say let's live a life of urgency, of purpose. We don't know when, but we know how we're called to live. So let's anticipate the return of Christ together, not in fear, but in hope, as we live boldly, as we live urgently. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I'd say again that if you're here today and you haven't made that decision to follow Jesus, if that's something you have questions about, if you're ready to do it, there's pastors in the back that would love to talk to you. They would love to have that conversation with you. They would pray with you even now. So God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that this is a day that you have made. And the truth is, we need you. So for those, of, those in the room who haven't put their faith in Jesus, Lord, would you, would you press them by your spirit? Would you show them your warm embrace? In the midst of their sin, in the midst of their brokenness, would you show them their, your love? And you make this the day, the day of their salvation. God, for us believers in the room, would you allow us to walk away changed? Would you allow us to walk away looking more like Jesus? Would you give us the discipline to pray more urgently, to set aside time to get away from the noise and deal with what's going on in our lives? Would you give us the boldness to, to love in places where it's hard? 
shine our light in places where it's most dark? Would you give us the endurance and invite people in, people from our family and community, invite them into our homes, invite them for a meal and invite them into a relationship? And Lord, for anyone here today that, that's suffering, that's experiencing pain, that's experiencing loss, would they say that they are not alone today? Do they have a Messiah who can identify with them, who loves them, who has walked the walk, and that they have a community all around them that's in it together? And God, would you help us be a church that truly is a living anticipation of your return? That we won't be caught off with a thief in the night. We'll be ready for your return. So God, we love you and we praise you. Would you help us even now to respond to you in the way you're calling? And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.